Hey, security peeps. We are live with another edition of Breaking into Cybersecurity. It is CISO Thursdays. Happy New Year again. Yay. I know I said it last time, but Happy New Year again. Before we get started, please, everyone, subscribe to our um, YouTube channel. You're already seeing us on LinkedIn. Subscribe, subscribe. Um, Folks that are coming on, please tell us where you are coming in from, where you're listening or viewing from. That's always awesome. Um, and I will go around and introduce ourselves. So first, my phenomenal, wonderful co-host of three and a half years, Chris Fallon. Howdy, everyone. <laughs> I don't know Alan's here, and I, I all of a sudden want to say howdy. But um, <laughs> welcome. That's all I have to say. I'll pass it on to Alan Alford to introduce himself, and then we'll go over to James Hollywood Square Styles. Okay, I was going to let James go first because he's James. But I'll go. I'm Alan Alford, uh, CISO and CTO at TrustMap, host of the Cyber Warriors podcast, general rogue about the cybersecurity community, many times over CISO. Uh, obviously, a masochist as well. That's the only reason we become CISOs, Alan, is because we do, like, I feel like we, we enjoy punishment. Yeah, it's got to be the, the predominant factor. That's all I can think. Right, because if you do it once and then you go and you do it again and again and again, yeah. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. So, James. hey, everyone. I'm James Azar. I'm a, I'm a CISO. I host the CISO Talk podcast, the Cyber Hub podcast um and you can go to our new cyber hub podcast website where you can see breaking into cybersecurity and actually binge on all your episodes in one beautiful lovely place i love it uh, so cyberhubpodcast.com just click on the breaking into cybersecurity podcast and you can check out all your favorite CISO thursdays every any single one of those leadership episodes really really cool stuff um right there so um you can do that while you're working uh taking a walk or just Whatever. And pretty soon we'll have our podcast uh, in an app. So you'll be able to go to the app store and get all of our episodes directly in your app and interact with all of us privately through our mobile app. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yeah, we have fun stuff. I mean, this is the killer crew right here. This you know, I mean, I'm so happy that Alan is here. Like, I haven't had my Alan dose since like, like before, before my day. I agree. Right? This is months. like a booster shot of Alan. Yeah, oh, you guys are too sweet. Yes. Y'all are my favorite show to come crash. By the way, like every time I get invited to come crash, y'all, I'll, I'll knock my schedule around to do it. Nice, awesome, awesome. Okay, so before we get started with our topic, some folks are checking in with us. Please, everybody, let us know where you are um, viewing us, listening from, all that good stuff. So, Stephen Upshaw, he's always here. We love you, Stephen. He's from San Diego. He's bringing sunshine to a cold day in Northern Virginia, that's for sure. Arturo Sanchez, first timer in here all the way from El Paso, Texas. Awesome. Well, welcome. I love El Paso. We hope you come back. Come back. Best street food in all of Texas is in El Paso. And I know that Alan's going to be like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> but I love El Paso and there's some phenomenal street food in El Paso. No disagreement. The elote and some other stuff in El Paso. There's some phenomenal, the street tacos. There is some killer food there to be had for sure. Good, yeah. good stuff. Zoe is here. Hey, Zoe, you have to tell us how that job is going. 
um dutch says four of my favorite peeps and you are i see him say that on every podcast with four (laughs) (laughs) dutch come on man you cheating on us Are you saying Dutch lacks, lacks discerning taste? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> we have to have Dutch come back. Dutch is also fun. Ariel says, hey, she is chiming in here from Dallas. These are some new folks. I, I like this. Hey, Sharon we got Dallas Arnold. representing. I know. So folks in Texas. Um, Sharon says, if you are from Durham, North Carolina, hey, Sharon. I know she's been here before. Um Joshua from Minneapolis. That's that's a plant. He's on my team at Trust. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Someone go. saying lies, lies, James, lies. Futuro <laughs> says we have the best tacos. Oh my gosh! All right, and I said your name right. That's awesome. Okay, folks. So as we get into it, James, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so um, anyone heard of a thing called Lock4J? I don't know. Lock4J, anyone heard of it? Very, very interesting. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you why I want to bring that up, because, Alan, I'd love your input on this. So we're doing a clubhouse room this morning, right? It was Mm -hmm. only 6.30 a.m. Eastern, right? It's not early for anyone. Um, And one of the the things we were talking about was Lock4J to the non-technical people who were like, well, we don't understand what this is. What, what the big deal is around Lock4J. And I was trying to explain it in a way that would make sense. So think that you've got a part in your car that your manufacturer of your car doesn't even know that part is in your car, but that part could be detrimental to the operation of your car. And mm-hmm. if you don't patch it, remove it, or fix it, then you're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. You, you mean like a bolt that secures any part of any vital instruments within your vehicle and this bolt needs to be randomly replaced in 100 million vehicles or more? Yeah, it's, it's more than that to me because it's not just a bolt. A, a bolt is a necessary component that you know is there, you want to be there and serves the one purpose of a bolt. It's almost like you bought a bolt, but what's actually there instead is a long skinny rod that keeps sticking into the works of the engine and causing trouble inside the engine when you think you bought a bolt. And yes, to your point, 10 million cars that need it changed as well. Yeah, and and, and I think that like for, I don't know about you, Alan, but I think for a lot of us that are practitioners, this was, and, and Chris as well, and let me not forget Chris is a practitioner as well. Um, you know, for a lot of us, this was kind of one of those things where it, it was, it was, the most helpless I've ever felt about a zero day vulnerability in my life. Mm. Interesting. And that's, that's over solar winds, Citrix. Over um, all of those, because I knew what I had. I knew I had Citrix. If I used solar winds, I knew I had solar winds, right? I right. knew I needed to patch it. Yeah. With log4j, it could have like someone who's just doing uh, chat bots for us could be using it within their software. And right. there's and no way for know. me to know. Yeah. You don't know. So so it's an invisible bolt that secretly sticks into the inner workings of your engine. We're extending our metaphor even further. So so think of this bolt as being critical for every part of the car. It's critical yeah. for your engine, your transmission, your lights, your car seats, your steering wheel, your hydraulics, your 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 you know, opening your car doors and closing your car doors, uh windows rolling up or down, AC working, heat working, uh your Bluetooth. Um 
think of it think of it as like being everywhere because mm -hmm. log4j is literally like a component that's that's everywhere yep and every time one of these things hits right a CISO goes through two instant things especially if you're a CISO at a vendor like I am right you go through three instant things the first one is oh my god what are we using in-house <laughs> the second one is oh my god what about all my vendors and then the third one is oh my god I am a vendor <laughs> and I better be prepared for the influx of people asking me the same question I'm asking my vendors. The supply chain, you know, I'm part of it both directions. And so as soon as Log4j hit, first thing I had to do was immediately reach out to all my peeps and say, okay, are you using it? Are you using it? Are you using it? Are you using it? And thank God this time, most of the answers that came back immediately were like, no, nah, we don't even have it. So I had one vendor finally come back and say, yes, we're using it, but we're already doing this and that, and it's contained in the following way, et cetera, et cetera. Like they already had some mitigating, compensating controls stuff going on. And that was it for my vendor pool. I had one who was already on top of it and everyone else wasn't using it. So I like one of my three boxes, I was able to check almost immediately. Usage in-house, again, lucked out, didn't have it anywhere. Our app isn't using it, our core SaaS, you know, that we provide our customers wasn't using it. So when the vendor emails started coming into me, I was able to just go, don't have it, don't have it, don't have it. So Log4j is the first one of the majors that has hit in the last 20 years that I actually got a free pass on. And I think I've earned it. I think I've earned a free pass. It's about time I finally got one. Um, so sitting but I, I ducked this one almost 100%. So, so you're sitting on the sideline, you're watching it kind of, start to take shape what, what are ordering, some of your thoughts around it oh i'm ordering meals and i'm ordering booze for my fellow CISOs and friends of mine that you know i had i had friends that when this thing hit it was like okay see you in four weeks and i'm not going to sleep for the entire four weeks best of luck to me um this was a devastating one for the industry this one was huge because log4j is everywhere and again i somehow lucked out but that doesn't mean you know i'm i'm this big a part of everywhere and log4j was everywhere and I don't know a single CISO, a single peer that didn't get hit to some degree or another. I, I haven't been running around bragging about it or talking about it, but I'm the only one in my circle that didn't get hit. Um, now they all know, and they're like, oh, that's why Alan is so refreshed. Right. Bill bags under his eyes. He actually <laughs> took a Christmas vacation. Right. That's why he's on Slack. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> This one was devastating. This one, to your point, was bigger than most because it's everywhere. It's intrinsic, and everyone's having to sift through their own supply chain, not just their own internal usage. And you don't know who wrote some code. You don't know what little apps were written in-house 10 years ago by some guy. You know, It's not just vendors. People found this stuff scattered all throughout their own internal sphere, um, and, and weeks later, we're uncovering it. And, and then the implications for some of the bigger environment, you know, VMware and everybody else starts saying, yeah, we're using it too. And these kinds of bits of news, it's just, it's, it's a concentric, it's like throwing a stone into a pond. The rings just keep getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. I, th I think the VMware piece though is, is probably the one that has me most, I feel like the VMware is the equivalent of Microsoft post solar ones. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's, that's a good analogy right there. Right, because 80% of the world's cloud operates on VMware. That's one thing that people yeah. don't know. Karen Warstall, who was uh, on one of my uh, practitioner briefs, she wrote it in the comments. She goes, people don't understand. Patch your VMware now. Um, yes. And, and Karen was the former CISO at Microsoft and a few other really you know, large mm -hmm. organizations. Mm -hmm. And she's at, I think she's at VMware now, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. But she goes, like, you need to get this stuff patched. Because 80% of the world cloud operates on VMware. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that number is just mind-boggling. So you can be impacted by this and not even know it. Your cloud, your 
your cloud provider could be running your instances on VMware and you don't even know it because how many people actually pay attention to that? Right, right. It's yeah, I think the other problem with um, with this compared to say other uh, celebrity vulnerabilities is that other celebrity vulnerabilities had one patch, you, you went in, you patched it and you were good. Um, this had a rolling cycle of patches three, four, five different patches over the course of one month. So now you have developers and security practitioners at major organizations that rather than having to go through one patch cycle, you're needing to go through two or three. And every time a patch is released, they now have to reconsider their entire environment and whether it's worth it or not to go to the next patch level. Mm -hmm. Whether the incremental difference between 2.15 and 2.16 is worth the the effort from the team to go to the next one and then from 2.16 to 2.17 and then 2.17 to 2.11 it, it just became such a such a an overload on the teams that you, you're having a lot of um dev teams and others that are burning out after this one compared to say um other ones yeah, Chris, I think what you're bringing about is the most underrated thing in all of security and all of IT management. It's probably one of the big things that um, um, it's probably one of the big things that most people miss when they're trying to look at a career into security, which is patch management. Right. And actually the PMP position of being running patch management um, for, for a specific security org. Um, patching is hard. No one ever said that patching is easy. Um, uh, I mean, if you look at even some of the, um, some like patch Tuesday was this week, right? So look at some of the Microsoft patches that came out. Some of them were, uh, uh, completing patches from patches that were issued in April of last year. So they patched the, the specific CV in April of last year, They've seen that there are more issues with that patch, and they've released the second patch for it in January of 2022. So I think, James, you know, yes, ma'am. While you're explaining, I always like to, especially when we're talking about people coming in, breaking in, explain what patch management is if they don't happen to know what that is mm-hmm. um, as a career, you know, potential career opportunity way in. Right. So, so. A lot of people think that security people do the patching, but we don't. Very rarely do security people actually do patching unless you're patching a security product. So if like you're a Pulse Secure customer, you pretty much do that like on any day that ends with a Y, um, right? But but patch management is essentially the role that most security teams have, which is kind of like a project manager who, who gathers who he or she may gather a um, all of the patches that need to be done within a specific environment and then ensure that the teams that need to do the patching um, are getting the patches done in time, meaning they're building a life cycle. So this patch needs to be done, but it's not a zero day. It's nothing urgent. So it can wait, you know, 30, 40 days. Um, and so a lot of this is project management, but you do need to have an understanding of risk management, of the operability of different softwares within an environment. Um, and what patching does, you've got to know, you, you know, it's good if you have some QA, um, QA background, um, 
so that way you, you you're able to kind of have that conversation uh, yep. but you don't need to be overly technical to be a project manager yeah, and patching say, is an update. Go ahead, go ahead, Alan. I was just going to say, don't forget the people skills because patching, to James's point, yeah. you're getting others to do the work that needs to be done. Uh, yeah. And those others are reluctant. Those others have possible implications of if I do this thing you want, it's going to blow up something that I'm held accountable for every day. And having those people skills uh, is so vital when you're dealing with patch management. And Alan, and explain to them what is a patch because they might not even understand, they, they may not know any, what that is. Any piece of software released by the vendor to update that vendor's software offering, uh, and usually it's in the case of um, security issues, tends to be the primary driver, I think. And there's always bugs and bug fixes and things like that that drive patches as well. But in the case of something like Log4j, everyone who's using Log4j is coming out with patches. We talked about VMware earlier. There's a VMware patch. Um, you know, each, each vendor who recognizes Microsoft. we've got a problem. Microsoft put out patches. Everybody put out patches. Um, and every Tuesday it happens. Well, Microsoft is every Tuesday, right? Every it's month Microsoft on the first Tuesday. On first the first Tuesday, Tuesday of, of the month. month. It used to right. be weekly, and they've, they've dropped down. Patch Tuesday is only monthly now. It's no longer weekly. Yeah. So, right. so there's, there's, there's a sadistic thing about our industry where there's this Patch Tuesday where every single vendor is like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to release all of our patches on this Tuesday. It's like someone saying, hey, you want to take a shower? Yeah, instead of moderating it over the week, you can only take a shower on Tuesday. And that right, shower right. needs to last you all week. So you better <laughs> moderate yourself, right? It's, it's the same thing. It's very, very sadistic because you get Microsoft and Adobe and uh, SAP and uh, all these different, like every single major company in, in, in the globe, Um does this and it's it's wow yeah and it's Just, a huge it's undertaking yeah to your point. I, I think when the I other thing go ahead chris i'm sorry I, I was gonna say i think the other thing with um patching and patch management that individuals need to think about is you have to prioritize that work for the organization against their other initiatives. Yes. So you have to prove to a dev team, a, a, a manager, um, department head, why taking away a developer or a system admin away from doing another task that can produce your organization money to do this patch. And oftentimes it's that battle and that prioritization that happens um, in order for for something to to win or to happen. Yeah. Dutch says, James, you're right. Karen is at VMware. She is brilliant and approachable. Yeah, Karen is awesome. Requiem 2099 said the whole team is in the house. Yes, we are. Folks, if anybody that's new on here or new to security or new to technology, if you have questions or if we're talking and you don't know what anything means, I try to remember um, how I was uh, years ago and now, like, what is that? What does this mean? What does that mean? Please ask us um, as we're going down this sometimes rabbit hole of things that are happening in the industry. So... Part, phase two of this discussion was going to be, um, James, you came up with the second part, which was around what, the, the talent component? Right. I mean, I mean, and we started talking about this talent component of, of patch management. Um, you know, I'm kind of going to kick this to Alan because I want to ask Alan a question. And, and, and Alan, you know, you've done this 
so many different iterations. What are some of the skills you found in the most successful people that ran patch management programs for you? Number one, people skills, like I said before, um, to, to Chris's point, you're convincing people to do a thing that's actually against their own interest. Everyone in the company is measured by something and developers are measured by uptime and not having bugs and not having crashes. And here you are introducing what in their spirit experience is, is bugs and crashes. Because very oftentimes the vendors produce that, that security patch and it causes a functional problem or it, it fixes a security issue and is incompatible with some other piece of software. Like, you know, Microsoft releases a patch and suddenly your VPN quits working. Things like that happen, right? Um, so people skills is number one. Project management skills, you've got to be anal retentive. You've got to be able to run multiple, multiple, multiple threads to ground and, and juggle them all and be aware of status and stature and all that. So project management skills are a very good one. And then finally, back to anal retentive, uh, I think, James, you said it earlier, that QA type skills are just super valuable. Um, that natural proclivity towards root cause analysis, the thing broke. I got a thing on my desk that broke. I want to know why it broke. And I'm going to start taking it apart piece by piece until I find out, aha, this is the gear that snapped into. This is why the clock quit ticking. That kind of mindset is so vital uh, for that world as well. Um, and so, you know, to James's point, I didn't list a single security skill just then. Um, I, I listed character traits, personality skills, people skills, soft skills. Um, none of that had anything to do with security. And yeah, the, the next one... The next one I would add to the list, kind of venturing into security is risk management, because you have to be able to talk to the different stakeholders and explain what the risk is to their organization if they don't install a patch and do so in a rational way, understanding the impact that this vulnerability can have in the environment, understanding potentially other compensating controls, and then what are the pros and cons of installing this patch at this time to a specific application? For example, trying to patch a mainframe uh, can have huge downstream effects when you think of something as complex as a mainframe, and that needs to be considered. So Mohammed says, patching software is something you've probably done. Did it require programming skills, which we've been in the middle of answering, and testing software, what do you think? So Muhammad. programming skills, no. Software testing, absolutely. Uh, every yeah. time you install a patch, whether you like it or not, you just became a software tester. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because, you know, sure, it probably fixes the thing it claims to fix. They, 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 the vendor, probably tested that part. Does it actually do what we wanted to do in terms of fixing the problem we said we're out to fix? But then the or impact to the rest of the system, does everything else work? Did it break something else? Uh, you will do software testing if you are doing patching. Cool. A lot of it. If you're in a responsible organization, let me preface that. You will do a lot of <laughs> unpatching if you work in a responsible organization. Do you need to do coding, programming skills? No, not necessarily. I think unless you're doing like mainframe stuff, like some of the old school patches that still require, you know, like command scripts to get them done and and and, and so forth. Today, most of it is about as hard as it is to, uh, to update your iPhone software. Um, yeah. Really. It's, um, and, say that. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it, it's creating a script to be able to uh, download the software and do the install. And that's as much programming skills as you need is just to run the script. Right. It's, it's, it's learning how to write in PowerShell uh, in most cases, because the scripts you're writing are all PowerShell. 
So if David you're Ruiz. In Microsoft. Oh. What? I said if you're in Microsoft, it's PowerShell. <laughs> Who's not in Microsoft? Alan. A lot of Linux, Linux, Linux organizations. Yeah. That's what? Five <laughs> percent? No, no. A lot of the infrastructure that runs major cloud vendors runs on Linux. So understanding Python scripts and running Python scripts, especially if you're supporting infrastructure as code, is going to be something that's important. So uh, you better learn your app get. <laughs> so what you're saying is learn Python and learn PowerShell. Without those two, you probably, you know, are, are pretty you good. Go. Now we include the Linux folks. <laughs> now, you know, my buddy Lee now would be so happy, right? So, yeah. You're, you're talking to a man with a Linux penguin tattooed on his arm, just so you know. I've got a Linux penguin like in here somewhere, right? I've got like one of the Linux penguins in here somewhere. Nice. I don't know nice. where it is. Somewhere so there. David Ruiz wants to, says he absolutely agrees. Proving the need is a battle to make sure they understand. And when the organization does, it makes a huge difference. And this was yep. in response to Alan's um, and Chris and James's points about having people skills and influential influencing without authority and all that good stuff. Well, yeah, because you don't have any authority. You're literally think of yourself as being a consultant. Um, you get to sit with everyone and, and, and say, all right, this is all the things we need to patch. Some people are looking at you and going, we don't need to do that. And, and if you've never been in a patch management meeting, let me tell you, um, you ever want to see people get really agitated, uh, sit in a patch management meeting with someone who's written their original like script and they go like, there's no need for this. <laughs> we thought about it. <laughs> Our complicated controls don't require us to patch this software. My software is perfect. Well, what Alan said, convincing them to do something that they have that it's against their best interest potential. Well, it's not against yeah. their best interest. Again, there's there's an there's there's a aspect of, of patch management that I think is often overlooked. And that part of it is is risk management and modernization of your of your environments. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of patches, while they address bugs and security issues, think of like how many patches Apple does that are feature upgrades and you person who wrote X to do X is fine with it, but the business wants all these different feature upgrades and these feature upgrades require a patch. So whether you like it or not, it's not always, I got to patch this so we don't get hacked. Sometimes I've got to patch this so the business can do better because it's adding additional features to our environment. Right. And, and I think that that's, a, a big piece of what sometimes people miss when it comes to patching is we yep. seem to always, yep. you know, kind of think that it has to do with security. And that's because we're narcissistic security people who think the world, you know, like the earth, everything revolves around the earth, right. Is, yeah. is how we see it. And, and, and security is earth and everything revolves right. around it. Right. But, but it's not, yep. earth, you it's know, security is earth and everything revolves around the sun and sun is revenue. And yep. if you don't, so can't, if you don't put can, that in your head, then you're, you're, you're going to be in a world of hurt. So can junior people, I know there's always a discussion around levels or, you know, how much experience a person can have to get into a position like this. Is this a place where a person with like zero experience, fresh out of school, fresh out of a boot camp, something to that effect, can they get into a patch management role or a patch? I don't know. Do they have patch analysts? 
get can they get into something like that or is it something where you need to have something else some other yeah i've had folks on my team in the past who were junior whose job was tracking the state of the patches like like the vulnerability management guys do their thing and the output gets spewed onto the table somebody's now got to go through and say okay to fix this one you have to go find this patch and apply it to fix this one you have to somebody has to cross-reference the problems to the patches and then somebody has to track are the patches actually getting done and again, it's people skills, project management skills, beg, borrow, steal, whatever you can do to convince people. And you're always going to run into those walls. To James's story, there's there's other similar stories. Like I, I've never worked in an enterprise that did not have at least that one server. Everyone knows the one server I'm talking about as soon as I say that. Hasn't been updated or patched in God only knows how long. Running proprietary code that was written by a guy who's no longer with the company and hasn't been for X years. And everyone's deathly afraid to touch it. And every time you talk about patching, like... That, that's the one system that's going to remain running Windows XP and will never be updated kind of approach back from the business to James's point about revenue. I, I, I worked in one company where the actual licensing issuing software for the company's products to its customers was that server. Every single sale flowed through that server. When the customer first set up and got their license sent to them, it was sent by that server. And my people came in and said, this thing needs to be patched, needs to be updated, needs to be upgraded, overhauled, yada, yada, yada. And the business looked at us like we were absolutely raving loons, which, which from their perspective, we were. So you don't have to have high-level skills to be the person having those conversations. You don't have to be the high-level skills to be the person tracking. All you need to do is come back to the CISO and say, hey, I found the one server, and it's these guys that own it, and they're putting up a fuss handing off to you now and let the CISO go do those battles. Uh, but you can be a new person and, and join up. And uh, yeah, to what Sharon's saying here. Sharon says that her friend started in a patch management role for a bank and she was working with Qualys. And she's, that's and, how and, she started her career. Great. And let me tell you something. If you start in patch management, you're, you know, a lot of people want to start like blue team, red team, right? Which I understand that, you know, Mr. Robot and a, bunch of different Hollywood movies have made you think that that's all security is, but it's really not. Patch management actually makes you a more balanced and will probably be a better trajectory across your career from uh, answering uh, um, the, the question that's right before Sharon's, right? Which is how would you motivate people to go into, you know, engineering and whatnot? Here, here's, here's what ends up happening. You start in blue team and red team. So you, it's, it's like everyone wants to be a wide receiver or running back when they're trying out for sports, right? Because those are the star positions. But there's only one guy competing for tackle, right? So everyone's going towards those like star positions in security because they think that that's where it's at. And then they go, well, I'm stuck in this role. I'm a stock analyst and I can't get out of it. Well, because you're going where everyone is. You start in patch management. You have better business visibility. You've got good security and IT visibility. And your chances of moving up within a year or 18 months are going to be far more than being a stock analyst, a red teamer or blue teamer because you're going to – skill positions that have so much competition and the moment you're down someone else comes in and takes your place because there's unlimited skill positions but if a team loses their left tackle and i'm just giving you guys a sports example if you don't know football i suggest you go to DuckDuckGo and search american football <laughs> and understand what skill positions are and then understand what a left tackle is right tom brady would not be the quarterback he was if he didn't have a really good left tackle watching his blind side right in patch management you're essentially the left tackle Right. That's what you are. 
Well, the good the good thing is, and I the reason why I, I love a this podcast, all of you, um, is because we get to talk about these various roles. Because I can assure you that some people here probably didn't know what patching may may not have known what patching is, doesn't know what patch management is, didn't know their patch management jobs exist, are likely you know maybe doing going on DuckDuckGo and putting in patch management jobs. What does that mean? What do they look for? So it's, I, I think, a huge education to some folks um, that just have no idea. They don't know what they don't know. So, mm-hmm. all right. So Requiem says, I've known many uh, great workers stuck in that entry-level job rut, great at their basic IT job, but I'm sure of how to bridge that gap to level up to, quote, engineer. What would you recommend to motivate them? I know, uh, James, you kind of semi-answered that. Anybody else have anything else to add? The, the thing that I would add to that is that it provides that business visibility that many other in security don't have because you're focused on your VPN product and or your firewall product and you don't know who uses it or what downstream. But when it comes to patch management, you know every single application in your organization, who runs it and why they need it that many other in security don't have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, which ties into a piece of advice I always give to answer Requiem's question and to dovetail completely with what Chris just said. Once you're that person that knows all the things and all the people that do all the things, now you can also be the person who goes to those people and says, hey, if you ever need help with anything, I'm your guy. Right. I'll, I'll drop what I'm doing and assist you on whatever little project it might be. And the VPN team takes you up on it. You learn a little more about VPN and the CASB team takes you up on it. You learn a little more about CASB and the SASE team takes you up on it. You learn a little more about SASE. Firewall team takes you up on it. You learn a little more about firewalling. Always volunteer, always be willing to be that person who dives just a little deep, more deeply in than what you are today. It doesn't have to be overnight. Suddenly you are the firewall guy. No, 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 no. Just I'm here to assist. What can I help with? You guys are doing an all nighter to replace an update. How do I help? I'll stay Friday night with you. Um, Volunteer. Dip your toes yeah. in every every pool you can find, and eventually you'll be a swimmer. Yeah, that's so how you get out of that entry-level rut, right? Because uh, so many people get stuck as a SOC analyst or red teamer. And again, because everyone's trying to start their career. And then, you know, in, in the how long we've been doing this now? For nearly two years, right? Like, you guys have been doing this podcast for three and a half. How many people have said, oh, I don't want to be a red teamer, blue teamer, or SOC analyst as, a, as an entry-level role? <laughs> that's all I know. When they but, well, when they show up here, but that's because the boot camps, right? Because the boot camps, yeah, that's the that's the selling you, right? It's like, right. hey, come be a hacker for only seven thousand dollars. We'll teach you everything you need to know about <laughs> hacking. In twenty-four In months, weeks, you'll be Mr. Robot. Twenty-four weeks, no! exactly. So- I started in middle school as Mr. Robot, quite frankly, uh, at a time when there were no laws against such things. I will point out. Uh, I don't, I don't have a, uh, what do they call that? The, the, um, you know, X years after the crime, you're, you're, you're scot-free or whatever. I don't even have to worry about that because there were no laws in the books when I started, but it was purely for hobby. It was purely for fun. It was purely to explore the known computing universe at the time. And then I went off and did completely other things with my life. And, and the way I ended up becoming a security professional is, yeah, I remember those skills from way back when I was a kid. Uh, to some extent, to whatever degree you remember what you did as a kid, but it was mostly just general purpose IT stuff that every time there was a security-ish component to it, I was the one who volunteered. Oh, oh, that the the anti-spam thing also does some anti-malware stuff. I, let me let me be the one to learn that. 
Oh, we got some new firewall modules we can install, um, et cetera, et cetera. I literally was just a regular IT person who had an interest in, in hacking and, and things of that sort and, and just volunteered. Every time, every time there was the littlest overlap with security, I was the first one in there and going, let me do that one. And, yeah. and eventually they let, they let me do those things. And eventually I became the security person. That's how it goes. Uh, Requiem says, seriously, an unnamed agency ran the entire network scripting efforts off one old unmaintained server using homebrew scripts written by one guy that left long ago. Every shot. On bullet wounds. You know what? Every if people shop. only knew that our entire financial system pretty much operates the same way, they'd be fascinated by it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Requiem is calling you Kevin Mitnick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment, Ellie. Yeah, I'm not sure either. <laughs> I think he's saying it as a compliment. Oh, uh, Dennis Lordy. says there's value to both 10,000 hours Gladwell as well as range. Epstein, new folks should consider gaining range early in their career. So mm-hmm. moving mm-hmm. around and doing different stuff. Um, David Ruiz, I'm a rookie CISO. Bringing them conversations and solutions are truly challenging. What I do is I look for organizations that suffer from those vulnerabilities and present it that way as this is what will happen to us if we don't fix it. So again, convincing skills. It's a good starting position. As long as they don't keep um, using that, that fear, uncertainty, and doubt in every single conversation. Because if all you do is present the doom and gloom, um, eventually you're going to be the little boy that cried wolf or the little girl that cried wolf and people are not going to believe you anymore. They're going to be like, oh, well, it happens all the time. It's not going to happen to us. So you have to go in with a more realistic conversation. You can't just use the the FUD all the time. Yeah, that's a very good point. And and one of those, David, to just give you an example and piggyback off of what Chris just said is talking about the risk that that specific vulnerability poses to the business, what it could do should that vulnerability be exploited to the business or to the operations of the business or to specific departments. And sometimes you don't even need to go to the um, IT folks that are supposed to patch it. You can go to the person who owns it on the business side. Could be the CFO, the COO, the CIO, the CTO, whoever, and have the conversation with them and get their buy-in to push it down so that people get it patched as well. A lot of times we want to go direct, but sometimes, especially if you're a rookie CISO, David, um, I'd recommend you build the relationships across with your other C-suite executives. And if you're having a hard time getting stuff done from a patching perspective, look to who owns that product uh, from a business operations perspective and get them on board. So that it becomes part of, you know, uh, something that you're doing together. Cool. So Will says, can't believe I nearly forgot to tune in this week. Great to see Alan, Alfred, and James today. He's blaming COVID. We hope you feel better, Will. Yeah, I get um, better. Yep. When security relies on the, what is that? Anti-Kythera mechanism? I don't know. And there are no ancient Greeks left to run the code. It's not ideal. I don't know what right. that's it. I mean, that's it. You, you, you still have that in a lot of uh, in a lot of different places, Renee. Where you know, l- let me put it to you like this: SolarWinds was the best thing to ever happen to Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The best yeah. thing to ever happen to Microsoft. The best, because yeah. it got them to go into their pockets and spend money and update their entire source code. Do you know how many lines were in there were written by some guy that Bill Gates hired and fired after three months? 
Right. 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 10, 10, 10, 15, study. 20 years ago. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. When, when he just started or as they were growing or when they did their first Windows licensing deal and someone wrote a bunch of scripts that are no longer valid but are sitting in that source code that still communicate that are somewhere in there. But you've got billions, billions right. of lines of source code. Dead Right. And, and all SolarWinds did was get them to do the job that no one wanted. Right. I'm sure they had like, we'll update uh, a million lines a year in our source code. They probably had like a 15 year plan. That 15 year, <laughs> year plan became a four month plan. Right. right. After SolarWinds and after they knew that, that China and Russia um, got, got their taking on their source code. Exactly. So Arturo wants to know, what are some other good entry-level positions to look out for along with patch management? Uh, junior GRC not- positions. Yes. Right. So, so junior That's GRC great- positions, um, a, um, a project management roles within security. Overlook project management because they go, that's not security, but it absolutely is. Um, it gives you the depth that Dutch talked about earlier. Right, you understand security. You also understand players. You get you get involvement across all the different business sides. Uh, what am I forgetting, Chris? Uh, there, there's privacy. There's risk management. Um, there, a lot of the non there's security awareness. Um, being a good communicator and being able to facilitate that to other app, other individuals within the organization that's critical. But you don't have to know that much more than the in than the people that you're teaching this content to. So a a lot of individuals within security awareness are um, marketing individuals or someone, uh, teachers or things like that, that that come over and they understand the information and they they can convey that to others in a very entertaining way so that you're not bored by PowerPoints. (laughs) <laughs> right. I think another hack might be to even research jobs, put in se- security. I mean, it's going to give you a, a lot, but jo- anything that's peripheral to security where you can understand, get in, you're, you're not in the role, but you're touching the role. So you're interacting with security team. Um, I was in HR. I'm still in HR. But I was recruiting for security, and I didn't know at the time that it would have been so fascinating to me that I would want to dig in more. But I was peripheral. Like before that, I had been doing all other types of IT recruiting, developers, Java, even non-IT finance and accounting and uh, attorneys and all different kinds of stuff. So roles that align to your skill set that you already have that touch into security some way is also another um, Always good way to get into security. T- take a part uh, in any big enterprise and count the number of bodies in all the departments, right? The odds are the risk team is maybe the same size or a little smaller in security. The legal team is probably bigger than security. The IT team is guaranteed to be bigger than security. Yeah. And every one of them has roles that intersects and overlaps with security. And you can always come in through those paths as well. Right. I, I know a lot of uh, CISOs these days are looking to build up their applica- application security arms and for those of you who are in development who have that interest in code that's a good way in for those that don't know code but want to get in that way um you can start learning code but i'm just saying that that's one of the 
the job listings that I've seen that has been so hard to fill for many organizations. Yeah. And Sharon wants to know, does vulnerability management deal with patches? Absolutely, because vulnerability management is the the operation of finding where those vulnerabilities exist and double checking, i.e. doing the QA, that the patches were applied successfully and you're not able to still get in through that previously patched hole. And if there isn't a patch, then you're putting in the compensating controls and mitigation in order to ensure that that patch doesn't become a liability. I think that's the, that's the big piece with vulnerability management roles is you've really got to be an out-of-box thinker because um, if there isn't a patch and in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, there isn't a patch. And when you go tell the vendor, we found a vulnerability in something and you need to patch it. Well, I think the rules are what, 90 days. You got to give them 90 days before you can publish it. Right. And guidelines. Guidelines. Right. You got to give them 90 days until. The, so you've got 90 days where this, you know, you might be the only person in the world who knows that. And I never buy that. Right. Like I never buy that. There's one security researcher in the whole world that found that one vulnerability. I say there's one honest security researcher in the world that found the vulnerability and reported it. There's 10 others that have sold it somewhere else for someone that's already making, you know, um, running scripts and trying to take advantage of that specific vulnerability. Right. Um, because, you, you know, there's more money on that other side than there is on that first one. And so uh, vulnerability management is, is very much a, um, I think it's a critical role within security. Um, it's underrated. I think it's more interesting than um, red teaming and blue teaming. Yep. Um, it's definitely funner than being a SOC analyst. Let me tell you that much. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a thousand uh, times. Why does everyone pick on the SOC? You know what? I'd rather get and have such a know, critical skill set. It, it, it is, but it's such it a just mundane. Gets boring after a while. It's such a mundane automatic job, Alan. It really is. It's an auto, like at, at this point, any vendor who comes and says like, I can't automate your sock, but I want to get in there. I'm like, get out of here. Turn around, like leave. <laughs> right. Like, and I'm throwing stuff at them as they're leaving. I'm like, go. Right. This is an absolute waste of my time. Yeah. <laughs> so Rick Rian wants to know, um, and this is in regards to David's comment, which I'll go back to. How do you combat the quote, security is a cost center viewpoint? i.e. trying to reframe cyber as a business enabler, not a bottomless cost. I can do this one. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So there's there's a lot of them, just an absolute lot of them, right? Um, First off is if you're in a B2B culture, business to business, right? Uh, As opposed to business to consumer, it is super easy to demonstrate that security is a value prop because everybody that's consuming your business's products and services you know, you've become part of their vendor supply chain and they need to know you're secure. Just like, you know, I told my story earlier about having to call all of my vendors. Are you guys secure? Are you using Log4J? Where are we at? Where are we at? Um, security is a differentiator. If you and three of your competitors are all offering roughly the same services and you're the only one who can offer them securely, that matters. So B2B is, is much easier than B2C. With B2C, you have to somehow convince individual consumers that they care about security. That's a whole other story. But then the second thing is um, business objective alignment, right? One of the things we do at my day job is we tell, we tell security practitioners, don't just measure risks. Don't just measure um, all of these maturity scores and everything else you're doing, but always align to business objectives. You can always take the business objectives you were fed from on high. CEO says this quarter, we're going to 
reduce our sales cycles. We're going to aggressively expand into the European theater. We're going to, you know, whatever the goals might be, there is guaranteed to be a way on a goal by goal basis that you can show where something in security achieves that goal, helps achieve that goal, speeds that goal along, removes an obstacle to completing that goal. You can always, always on a goal by goal basis, find that connection and, and advertise and sell that connection. I'd double down on that because when you, if you also frame it the other way, if security takes down an aspect of the organization, it's costing the organization money. So if you preact, preemptively help with the security from design, implementation, early in the sprint, early in the development cycle, then you remove that from happening later on and it might cost x here but it'll cost 10x after it's been live so try to invest the time when it's only costing you x versus 10x requiem mm -hmm. mm -hmm. says thanks alan joshua says amen um okay requiem had a funny comment i've worked in and around around enough knocks nosk socks it's awful <laughs> I think you Fusion know, Center is the, is the new uh, word du jour. Yeah, that's the new word du jour. What yeah, they're, they're trying to make Center it cool. Right it's, kind of like, it's, it's kind of like, you know, renaming something that's bad, right? <laughs> like just rebranding it. I can give you a lot of name. examples. None of them are good. Yeah. You're no longer being punched in the face, sir. You're receiving vigorous kinetic face uh, enhancement. <laughs> it's Botox. You're no longer being punched in the face. It's Botox. Oh, Lord. Dutch agrees with Chris regarding FUD. Start with what category of risk is the biggest or most concerning to the business? One, reputational. Two, threat of litigation. Three, operational. Then what do the business execs care about because they own the risk? That's such a good point. Preach it, brother. Such a good point. Uh, okay. Sterling says here, master or refine a skill you want, you have or want to have that not everyone is doing. Security has been advertised, advertised so much that in a sense, you need to step away from the common road. And as Robert Frost says, quote, the road less traveled by. Great discussion all. I thoroughly enjoy CISO Thursdays. Well, thank you, Sterling. I 100% agree with that point. And Gabriel says, hello from Houston. There's a lot of Texas going on in here today. Heck yeah. Uh, please, what's Thank more you. fun? TPRM or ERM? What's TPRM? I know Enterprise Risk Management. Uh, technical ERM. Project Risk Management or okay. Enterprise Risk Management. So Enterprise Risk Management is more on the overall focus of the enterprise, primarily on the business side where uh, TPRM, uh, Technical Project Risk Management, is more focused on the risk management around a smaller product or portfolio. So it's a smaller in scale, more focused. It depends where you like to play, whether you uh, like to play at the 40,000 foot view or you like to play uh, down in the, in the gutters. Um, that's your choice. So that, that's what I would say. On regards to, I was going to say a point earlier with the road less traveled, um, for an entry-level position or someone coming in entry-level, if you do documentation, you will be loved by everyone on the team because everyone hates to do documentation. Oh God, and if you so can true. help them with documentation, you, you'll um, gain a lot of favors and you'll learn so much about the environment along the way. So um, a little bit of a plug of how I ended up in, in this space. And one of them was, A, 
I picked up and started doing documentation because the person who who hired me was like, I want you to do all stuff all the other guys don't want to do. <laughs> like, nobody wanted to do that. So that's number one. And number two, he's like, because I had been in HR and had known so many hiring managers over so many different groups, he was like, you know so many people that when we need to get things done, we could just ask you. So when stuff would fall off and they'd be like, who do I contact for this? I'd be like, oh, contact so-and-so, contact so-and-so. So it goes back to what you all talked about earlier in terms of being in a role where you interact with a lot of business folks. Um, because again, some uh, security is touching so many different avenues and getting people that you want to, um, to, to reach out to to get something done that they don't necessarily have to do. So, um, Chris, I know you have to leave soon. Boo-hoo. Um, don't We've go. got a few minutes left. We have um, a few minutes. Um, but there were a couple other comments in here. Uh, Sterling says, LinkedIn shows how many people have applied to a job. If you're putting up against 400 other people, myself included, we need to dig smarter, not deeper. Mm-hmm. Super like I said, deeper. everyone's going for skilled positions. No one's looking at, you know, the the meat and, and, and bone type of positions like, you know, patch management or risk management or GRC or um, documentation management. Yeah, right. implementation, project yeah. management. No one's looking at those. Gabriel said third-party risk management. Keep That's what it was. So it's enterprise yeah. risk management versus third-party risk management. So TPRM tends to be in the realm of the CISO, tends to be in the cyber side of the house, generally speaking. Uh, ERM tends to be under the chief risk officer or, you know, if they have that role, it's, you know, to, to Chris's earlier point, ERM is more business and less technical. It's not just higher level. It's also more business and less technical. TPRM tends to be more technical and less business, um, tends to ride with the CISOs in my experience. Although obviously from an ERM perspective, you should be evaluating all your third-party vendors, not just for technical risks, but for any other risks as well. Um, so, you know, um, six and one half dozen in the other, pretty much what Chris said. Further Sterling's point, DevSec skills are becoming more significant, right? As my mentor once told me, if the infrastructure security is failing sound, hackers are like, oh, well, how can we get in through port 443 or, you know, any other one? Yep. Application security. And uh, Requiem says, so basically cyber minus engineering equal communicator, cyber cyber minus senior management equal sales so, yeah, so cyber engineering is communicated. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, minus. Yeah. And, and CISO is, all CISOs are salesmen to a certain extent, period. You are. All senior level executives are. Yeah. Um, Sharon says, I was thinking about switching to a SOC role. I didn't know it was there. <laughs> now, these guys keep picking on SOC. I'll tell you this about the Go SOC. Go to the SOC, um, Sharon. If, if you are the sort of person who loves detail, I mean truly loves detail, and loves to pull at threads, one tiny thread sticking out of your clothes and you start to pull it and you realize, hey, this could actually be a, you know, something critical that's holding the sleeve together. And, and I'm going to investigate this and dig into this and turn the shirt inside out and follow the thread all the way through and figure out where it is and cut it off or sew it off where it needs to be cut off or sewn off. If you're that sort of person, the sock is a fantastic place to be. And it is a great launch pad for other careers in cyber as well. If you can get in the sock and it's available. I definitely recommend everybody do at least a rotation there. Like, like, you know, yeah. all these other roles we've talked about, do them but also do a roll in the sock. I agree with Alan. I learned a bananas amount. I learned everything I knew from being in the sock. Um, and it was a rotation and I learned, I just learned a ton. 
from being in there. So, mm-hmm. all right, folks, it is three minutes to the top of the hour. So I want to make sure if anyone has a final question or wants to get it in, get it in quickly. Alan, any final comments before we wrap? I just wanted to thank you guys again for having me out. Every time I come to the show, I have a blast. I love you guys. Love your audience. Love the interactivity. Y'all are doing a fantastic job. James, you are looking very much like somebody who doesn't have a newborn baby. I'm impressed. I thought you'd be like huge bags in your eyes and falling asleep during the recording. That was last month. That was last month. I have a superstar for a wife who is, uh, who's, who's been very generous in allowing me to get a few more hours of sleep every night. Um, that's wonderful but, but but baby's three months today so hopefully so, we're, we're over the overnight hump there you go um, we'll set her up with a mani petty and a weekend at the spa like take care of her yes yes that is amen alan amen okay sharon says thanks alan we thank you too love for you to be here you come back anytime we love having you a lot of fun it's yeah, so alan's much lot- fun so much fun when Alan is here. Alan, Dutch, it's some folks that come on. It's just a blast every single time. Um, final comments before we go. Requiem. My experience is easier for entry-level early career people to wrap their brains around the technical roles. Understanding and communicating soft skills applied to GRC, risk, et cetera, is more difficult. It depends on, I think, your skill set. Like for me, it was very easy for me not to wrap around technical and to be sitting around talking to people. <laughs> like that's what I like to do. I, th- I think I think I think there's 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 more to that, but we can dig into that next week. Okay, we'll dig in next week. Will, thanks guys. Thank you all. Thanks, Alan. We will wrap next week. Uh, same time, same place, one p.m. Thursday. I don't know who will be here, but we'll be having fun regardless. Have a good week, everybody. Y'all be good. Bye.